Welcome to Quanta Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. In 1891, German biologist Hans Driesch split two-cell sea urchin embryos in half. He found that each of the separated cells then grew into its own complete but smaller larva. Somehow, the halves knew to change their entire developmental program. At that stage, the blueprint for what they would become had apparently not been drawn out yet, at least not in ink. For more than a century, scientists have been trying to understand what goes into making this blueprint and how instructive it is. It's now known that some form of positional information makes genes switch on and off throughout the embryo. This gives cells distinct identities based on their location. But the signals carrying that information seem to fluctuate widely and chaotically, the opposite of what you might expect for an important guiding influence. Robert Brewster is a systems biologist at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. He says the embryo is a noisy environment. But it somehow comes together to give you a very reproducible, crisp, and exact body plan. The same precision and reproducibility emerge from a sea of noise again and again in many cellular processes. That mounting evidence is leading some biologists to a bold hypothesis that cells may extract as much useful information in their complex surroundings as possible so they can find solutions to life's challenges that are not just good, but optimal. Biologists haven't traditionally cast analyses of life as optimization problems. The complexity of living systems makes them hard to quantify, and it can be difficult to discern what would be optimized. And while evolutionary theory suggests that evolving systems can improve over time, nothing guarantees that they should be driven to an optimal level. Yet, when researchers have been able to appropriately determine what cells are doing, many have been surprised to see clear indications of optimization. Hints have turned up in how the brain responds to external stimuli and how microbes respond to chemicals in their environments. Now, some of the best evidence has emerged from a new study of fly larva development reported in the journal Cell. For decades, scientists have looked to fruit fly larvae for clues about how development unfolds. Here's Robert Brewster again. It was known for a long time that certain morphogen gradients dictated where you would form the neck of a fly, for instance, where these stripes are, things like that. Some details become apparent early on. In a young larva, a cascade of genetic signals establishes a pattern along the head-to-tail axis. Signaling molecules called morphogens then diffuse through the embryonic tissues, eventually defining the formation of body parts. Particularly important in the fly are four gap genes, which are expressed separately in broad, overlapping domains along the axis. They make proteins that help regulate the expression of pair rule genes. Those genes create a precisely regular striped pattern along the embryo. The stripes establish the groundwork for the body later dividing into segments. How cells make sense of these diffusion gradients has always been a mystery. Most scientists assumed that protein levels pointed the cells roughly in the right direction. The cells would then continuously monitor their changing surroundings, 
they'd make small corrective adjustments as development proceeded, locking in on their planned identity relatively late. That model goes back to the developmental landscape proposed by Conrad Waddington in 1956. He compared the process of a cell homing in on its fate to a ball rolling down a series of steeper and steeper valleys and forked paths. Cells had to acquire more and more information to refine their positional knowledge over time. Yane Kondef is a physicist at Brandeis University. It's sort of like the equivalent of the 20-question game. So every time you ask a question, you zero in on the answer more and more and more and more and more. But such a system could be accident-prone. Some cells would inevitably take the wrong paths and be unable to get back on track. In contrast, comparisons of fly embryos revealed that the placement of pair rule stripes was incredibly precise to within 1% of the embryo's length. That's basically single-cell accuracy. That prompted a group at Princeton University to suspect something else, that the cells could get all the information they need to define the positions of pair rule stripes from the expression levels of the gap genes alone. That's despite the fact that those are not periodic, and so not an obvious source for such precise instructions. That's just what the group led by biophysicists Thomas Greger and William Bialik found. Over 12 years, they measured morphogen and gap gene protein concentrations, cell by cell, from one embryo to the next. They determined how all four gap genes were most likely to be expressed at every position along the head-to-tail axis. From those probability distributions, they built a dictionary or decoder. That's an explicit map that could spit out a probabilistic estimate of a cell's position based on its gap gene protein concentration levels. Around a half decade ago, the researchers determined this mapping by assuming it worked like what's known as an optimal Bayesian decoder. The decoder inferred the likelihood of events from prior conditional probabilities in keeping with the principle called Bayes' rule. The Bayesian framework allowed the scientists to flip the unknowns and generate a best guess of a cell's position from information about the expression of its gap genes. The team found that the fluctuations of the four gap genes could be used to predict the precise locations of individual cells, but they needed the maximum information about all four gap genes to do it. When the activity of only two or three was provided, the decoder's location predictions were far less accurate. The researchers also experimented with versions of the decoder that used less of the information from all four gap genes. For instance, maybe they only responded to whether each gene was on or off. Those decoders made worse predictions, too. Until that point, no one had ever shown how well reading out the concentration of these molecular gradients actually pinpointed a specific position along the axis. Now they had. Even given the limited number of molecules under study and the statistical noise in the system, the varying concentrations of the gap genes was enough to differentiate and define two neighboring cells in the head-to-tail axis, and Gregor says the rest of the gene network seemed to be transmitting that information optimally. But the question always remained open, does the biology actually care? Or is this just something that we measure, but in fact the embryo can't really do anything with that? 
Could the regulatory regions of DNA that responded to the gap genes really be wired in such a way that they decoded the positional information from those genes? The biophysicists teamed up with Nobel Prize-winning biologist Eric Wieschaus. They wanted to test whether the cells were actually making use of the information at their disposal. They created mutant embryos by modifying the gradients of morphogens in very young fly embryos. Those then altered the expression patterns of the gap genes and ultimately caused pair rule stripes to shift, disappear, duplicate, or have fuzzy edges. Even so, the researchers found that their decoder could predict the changes in mutated pair rule expression with surprising accuracy. Here's systems biologist Robert Brewster, who wasn't involved with the study. The cell has this information and it knows it's at this location it can figure out that it can decode that it's at some position. And now we sort of jumble up these signals such that a cell that was at that position is still at that position is now getting a different set of signals. And sure enough, it thinks that it's in another part of the body. You could imagine if it was getting information from other sources that you couldn't trick it like that, right? That it would just adjust. And in that case, your decoder would fail. And they don't really see that. So I think that's what's very interesting about the whole thing. Condef, who also wasn't involved in the study, says these findings represent a signpost. The whole point of this is to say there's some reality to this decoder, some physical reality, right? The fact that you can use the same decoder for all these different mutants, that tells you that somehow through evolution, (laughs) these cells have figured out how to implement Bayes' trick using regulatory DNA. How the cells do it remains a mystery. Even so, the work provides a new way of thinking about early development, gene regulation, and perhaps evolution in general. The study's Thomas Greger says the findings provide a fresh perspective on Waddington's idea of a developmental landscape. The theory behind this goes back to Waddington. There's a Waddington landscape in which cells go down the landscape and initially they have a very broad range of what they could become and then it narrows down more and more as development progresses. And what we are saying, well, in fact, the cells, all of the cells already know that at the very beginning of that landscape. So Gregor says their work indicates that there's no need for 20 questions or a gradual refinement of knowledge because all the information is already there. Manuel Razo Mejia, a graduate student at Caltech, says this is an exciting idea. Organisms seem to be optimizing the tasks that they have to perform, like evolution and natural selection are pushing them hard enough such that they explore the parameter space and reach a point where they perform tasks at the limit of what physics allows. It's possible that the high performance in this case is a fluke. One scientist suggests that since fruit fly embryos develop very quickly, perhaps in this case, evolution has found an optimal solution because of the pressure to do everything so quickly. To really cement whether this is something more general, researchers will have to test the decoder in other species, including those that develop more slowly. Even so, these results set up intriguing new questions to ask about regulatory elements that are often difficult to understand. 
Scientists don't have a solid grasp of how regulatory DNA codes for the control of other genes' activities. The team's findings suggest that this involves an optimal Bayesian decoder, which allows the regulatory elements to respond to very subtle changes in the pattern of gap gene expression. Physicist Yane Kondef says now they have something to shoot for. We can ask the question, okay, what is it about the regulatory DNA that encodes the decoder, right? What is it? So somehow that bit of DNA is doing the job of this mathematical object, the decoder. But how is it doing it? What about it makes it do this optimal decoding? That's a question that we could not have asked before the study. Others say this sets up the next challenge in the field. There may be many ways of implementing a similar decoder at the molecular level, so this idea could apply to other systems as well. In fact, hints of it have been uncovered in the development of the neural tube in vertebrates, the precursor of their central nervous system, although that would have to work very differently. Plus, if these regulatory regions need to perform an optimal decoding function, that potentially limits how they can evolve. And in turn, Condef says how an entire organism can evolve. Information provides an important constraint on what is evolvable. To me, it's a problem. I mean, you know, we have this one example of life, which is the life that evolved on this planet. And we don't know if it's the only way that life can arise out of non-living stuff basically because we don't know what are the important constraints. Condef says finding that cells show Bayesian behavior could be a hint that processing information effectively may be a general principle. That make a bunch of atoms stuck together loosely behave like the thing that we think is life. The ultimate proof, of course, would be, I don't know, you find life on another planet and then you see if they do it as well. Thomas Greger says solving this would be a physicist's dream. But we are far from really having proof for this. But this is just hints that this could be the case. Because we have no idea how evolution, what is evolution. There's no principle that tells us how evolution operates or works. The concept of information optimization is actually rooted in electrical engineering. Experts originally wanted to understand how best to encode and then decode sound to allow people to talk on the telephone via transoceanic cables. That goal later turned into a broader consideration of how to transmit information optimally through a channel. It wasn't much of a leap to apply the framework to the brain's sensory systems and how they measured, encoded, and decoded inputs to produce a response. Now some experts are trying to think about all kinds of sensory systems in this way. For instance, Caltech's Manuel Razo Mejia has studied how optimally bacteria sense and process chemicals in their environment and how that might affect their fitness. Others have been asking what a good decoding strategy might look like in the adaptive immune system, which has to recognize and respond to all kinds of intruders. Biophysicist William Bialik says because optimization is a concrete idea, it can point to some interesting things to measure. Whether or not they're correct, he considers them productive to think about it. But what makes it hard is in many systems, the property being decoded isn't just one-dimensional. That makes it a lot harder to define. I don't know how easy it will be to replicate this in other systems. And Yane Kondef says that's what made the system Bialik and his colleagues studied so tantalizing. There's not many examples in biology where a high-level idea like information, in this case, 
leads to a mathematical formula, which then in experiments on cells, these guys test. This marriage of theory and experiment excites biophysicist William Bialik. He hopes to see the approach continue to guide work in other contexts. But he says it's not clear whether the observed optimization is just a rare curiosity or something more general. If it's more general, then some scientists say it would be a sign that evolution finds efficient ways of doing things. Condef says he's hopeful about the finding, but it's hard to say what the big lesson is for biology this early on. Still, he says it's exciting. And the reason it's exciting, it's, you know, as I'm a physicist and as a physicist, you hope that there are principles, that the phenomenon in life is not just about the very specific chemistry and DNA and the molecules that are made use of to make living things on planet Earth, that it's sort of broader. And then so what is that broader thing? Maybe this is kind of lifting a little bit uh, the veil off of that mystery. Michelle Yoon helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Jordana Sapelowicz's full article, The Math That Tells Cells What They Are, on our website, quantamagazine.org. And if you're looking for some reading material, the MIT Press has published two quanta books, Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire and The Prime Number Conspiracy, available now at amazon.com, barnesandnoble.com, or your local bookstore.